If you're thinking about getting out of debt, do it now. I'm attorney Peter Francis Geraci. There's still time to file under the current law, and we can do your case right away. So don't delay. Listen to my Chapter 13 info tapes for more info about the new bankruptcy law. I'm not a heroic first responder. I'm also not a mega-talented guitar virtuoso that sadly few people have heard of. I am just a schnook. Well, hey there, friends. Thank you for joining me on Autobiography of a Schnook. This is Sean, the host. Duh. You might be able to hear one of my neighbor's dogs barking in the background. Uh, Our dog, Lola, she's just kind of taking a little snooze right now. But um, I hope all of you are doing okay. As for me, I don't know how the heck I'm doing. I had a really nasty cold back in August, and it just wants to hang on. And I think it's just the weather we've been having in Chicago. It's been very humid for the past several weeks. And it's really, really playing hell on my allergies. There's uh, been a lot of uh, ragweed in the air and that's one of my allergies actually. And it's been just terrible. It's been nuts. So I don't, I don't know what else to say. Um, this isn't going to, I don't think this is going to be a terribly long episode. So uh, I feel weird for not kind of preambling a little bit longer before I get into any features today. I am going to forewarn you right now, today's episode is going to be a little bit on the somber side, partly because we just passed a pretty significant anniversary in this country, and I'm going to share my uh, recollections of it. And before I do that, though, I kind of want to at least get a little bit of uh, lightheartedness going. A couple of times before, I talked about those little things that people pass around Facebook sometimes, and I want to do another one of those right now. Uh, This came from, um, at least the date on this is February 13th, 2018. It's one of those, hey, hold your finger on the post, hit copy and paste it to your status things. So, hey, let's hear what I would say. This is, after all, autobiography of a schnook. Favorite smell. Oh, my goodness. That that is a hard one. There are lots of smells I like. Uh, I love the smell of uh, a nice, clean body of water especially salt water. Like if you're at a nice ocean beach, the aroma that can come from it is quite amazing. I love the smell of barbecuing food and I love the smell of Turkey in the oven. Oh man, it's such a good smell. I wish they would make air fresheners that had that scent last cry. Oh man. Oh, I don't, that would, that's a tough one. I I really don't know. I really don't know. The day that we met our current dog and signed the uh, signed the adoption form and everything, uh, we didn't take her home that day, but we made the arrangements that day. My wife said it looked like I was welling up when we did that, so maybe that counts. I don't know. So that was uh, July 10th, 2019, I think, July 10th. That was a Wednesday, so let's see. We brought her home the 13th, which was a Saturday. So Wednesday the 10th, July 11th, Thursday. Yeah, that would have been... Uh, July 10th favorite pizza. Uh, well, the way this person answered it, he just said broccoli. So I guess it means favorite pizza toppings. I'm usually a pepperoni guy, but I've found lately that bacon is an amazing topping. So lately I've been ordering pepperoni and bacon. I'm not a sausage person because most of the time the Italian sausage has that 
anise in it, and I hate that stuff. Ugh. But Lou Malnati is one of the uh, big deep dish players in Chicago. I love their sausage pizza. So if I'm having pizza from Lou Malnati's, I'll gravitate toward the sausage pizza. And I mentioned before how I love deep dish pizza, but my favorite is actually just kind of a happy medium, something with a good thick crust. Favorite flower? Huh. That's a tough one because I don't generally like flowers. I, I know there's something wrong with me, but I do not like the smell of flowers. I really, really don't. There's something chemically about them that really bothers me. So my favorite flower eh, doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Favorite dog? Well, the way this person answered it, it looks like favorite dog breed. And I'm partial to beagles, thanks to my wife who turned me on to beagles. Is she her first the the dog that her parents had when she was a baby was a beagle. She always loved beagles. When she graduated from college, um, one of her roommates offered her a beagle puppy. Her father was breeding beagles for hunting purposes, and they offered my wife. Obviously, she wasn't my wife then. They offered her one of the babies, and so she had Spot. And when she moved out of her mother's house, her mom said, would you mind if I kept Spot? And Lisa said, well, sure, you could, let's do that. And that made Lisa's apartment hunting easier because there weren't many places at the Jersey Shore where she lived that would allow dogs. So that kind of made it a little bit easier for her. And Spot was, uh, he's a crazy little guy. I mean, he wasn't that little, actually. He was kind of a big beagle, but uh, he lived to be 12 years old. After we moved to Chicago and after Spot was gone and after Lisa was gainfully employed, we adopted Ruthie. We had her for 10 years, and now we have Lola, who is also a Ruthie and Lola, obviously, also beagles. And they are both wonderful dogs. Um, favorite foot attire? That's a weird one. Uh I don't know. I don't, I never really thought of it. I mean, sometimes I like wearing Birkenstock sandals. Sometimes I'd rather wear shoes, especially if they curve to my really weird arches. I mean, I don't know. That's a weird one to put. Roller coaster is next. Um, I really don't know. The only time I was ever on a real roller coaster was Big Thunder Mountain Railroad in Disney World back in the mid 80s. And it made me sick. I threw up three times after riding that thing, including on a Kmart floor in Orlando. I liked it. I enjoyed the ride. I didn't like throwing up three times, though. I haven't been on a roller coaster since, mainly because I don't really go to amusement parks. Am I willing to try again? Sure, as long as the roller coaster doesn't go upside down. I cannot deal with upside down. And I blame my Uncle Phil for that. My Uncle Phil is a wonderful guy, but when I was a little kid... Whenever we'd have family gatherings, when he'd walk into the house, the first thing he would do is grab me and turn me upside down. And it really disoriented me and I hated it. It got to the point where I would like run and hide when Uncle Phil would come. <laughs> but um, yeah, roller coaster. The only other time I was considering going on a roller coaster was when Lisa and I went to LA in 2016. And for God knows what reason, we decided to go to Disneyland. I'm not a Disney fan at all. I have kind of not good feelings about Disney. Having said that, if Disney wishes to sponsor this podcast, I'm certainly willing to listen. <laughs> but I gotta say, I had a great time. I really did. But the problem is, all the good rides had extremely long waits, and so we didn't want to hang around like waiting for that, so we did other things. But 
I was going to go on Space Mountain, but oh well. Hair color? Blonde. Very bright blonde, actually. I had a friend once who asked, God, was was it my friend Bridget? I don't remember, but one of my friends said to me once, you don't dye your hair, dude. I was like, no, I don't dye. I don't dye my hair. Favorite ice cream. Oh, man, I love ice cream any time of year. I don't know why people think that when it's cold out, you can't have ice cream. But I usually gravitate. Usually my uh, default flavor is cookie dough. But if there's like some kind of a cake batter or birthday cake, I go for that. Oh, man. You get me a good cake batter ice cream. It's just, yeah, everything else doesn't matter. Speaking of cookie dough, the best cookie dough ice cream I ever had. Well, it wasn't really ice cream, so to speak. But it was the fat-free frozen yogurt made by Turkey Hill. And we can't get that out here in Chicago. Turkey Hill does exist out here, but not the whole selection. When we lived in New Jersey, we could find it anywhere. And they had some amazing cookie dough frozen yogurt. Oh, it was awesome. But oh well. Let's see. Pet peeve. Oh man, good lord. Where where do I begin? Uh, people who don't use... IT apostrophe S properly. Um, let's see, when I'm on my bike and I see other people on bikes disregarding stop signs and other traffic signals, that burns me up because it makes all of us look bad. Um, wow. Oh my goodness. I'm just I'm just thinking about the most recent things that happened to me in the past couple of hours. I have a lot of pet peeves, a lot of them. Uh bad grammar in general makes me really angry. Oh man, like earlier today, earlier today at work. I heard one of my coworkers say verbiage. That word happens way, that non word, excuse me, happens way too much where I work. There's no such word as verbiage. It's verbiage, verbiage. And let's see, anything Microsoft is a pet peeve of mine. Um, having said that, I will welcome Microsoft as a sponsor, have, uh, should they so desire. <clears throat> hey, I just, I, you know, I'm just going to cut while I'm ahead. Uh, I, I just way too many pet peeves to mention. Shorts or jeans? When I come home from work and I know I'm not going to be going out anywhere, I have comfortable shorts on. I go to bed with comfortable shorts on. In fact, sometimes I wear shorts to work, depending on how warm it's going to be or how humid it is. But um, other than that, I wear jeans. I wear jeans. I like jeans. I blue jeans and black jeans. I like the way black jeans look. What are you listening to? Oh, I'm listening to myself record this thing. Uh, But the most recent thing I was listening to, I was listening to my friend Bill Pepper, who uh, just the day before I'm recording this, released a new episode of his podcast called It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown. And, oh, crap, I don't remember the guy's name, but he had a guest, and it was the guy who did the voice of Charlie Brown on the uh, Saturday morning TV show, the Charlie Brown and Snoopy show, and that was a really cool interview. Color of my vehicle. Um, depends on which vehicle you're talking about. If you're talking about my bike, it's maroon. If you're talking about my car, it's black. So there you go. Color of eyes. Well, white uh, with little black dots inside them. Uh, those are called pupils. And each pupil is surrounded by what many people call an iris. My irises are blue. So there you go. I'm, t- I'm giving way too much personal information out. <laughs> Favorite holiday? Oh, man. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, c- I could say Christmas. Interestingly, my friend who responded to this is Jewish, and he said Christmas. And th- that's interesting because I have another friend who's uh, Jewish, and uh, his daughter, well, actually, uh, one of his daughters married a Catholic, and another one of his daughters married a Lutheran, and he often goes to Catholic and Lutheran services because he loves them so much. 
But um, my favorite holiday, I like, I like Christmas. I like Christmas just because uh, I know it sounds selfish, but I like it because usually when Christmas happens, I'm not back at work again until the new year happens. So I have a lot of time off to look forward to spending time with my wife and dog and seeing my family. You know, it's a, it's just a nice time, you know, night owl or day person. Um, I'm a day person, but I'm not a morning person at all, at all. I, 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 I can never understand how the world expects people to operate before 2 p.m. or after 4 p.m. So, yeah, that's right. We should only have two-hour workdays. Yeah. I guess, I mean, the thing is, I can stay up really super late. I don't know if I'd consider myself a night owl, but I can stay up really late without detrimental effects unless I wake up too early. Favorite day of the week. Favorite day of the week. Gotta be Friday, really. A lot of people want to say Saturday because, hey, you're off, but I like Friday because usually the workday is pretty easy, at least in my case, and I have a whole weekend to look forward to, and Friday is payday, and the cool thing is my wife and I, our two-week pay periods kind of alternate, so every single Friday we get a paycheck, so that's really cool. Tattoos. Uh, Yeah, I don't have any tattoos at all. I don't know. Something about going up to somebody and saying, hey, here's a hundred bucks, Draw something on me that I can't take off without expensive surgery. I don't know. That just doesn't appeal to me. I always think that if I'm ever going to get a tattoo, it's going to be some kind of series of numbers, like four or five digits on my wrist or maybe my toes so that somebody sees that they think I escaped from something. But that's it. I, 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 I don't know. Tattoos, not for me. Not for me. If I ever do get a tattoo, though, if I ever change my mind, I think I want to do that ancient way of getting a tattoo. Uh, I don't know if any of you ever watched uh, Ozzy and Jack's World Detour. That's when Ozzy Osbourne and his son Jack would do a road trip together. They did two or three seasons of that. And on one of the episodes where they were, they went to this tattoo parlor where they don't use modern tattoo needles or something. They use this really old-fashioned thing that, that, that had been done for centuries. And uh, they almost did it as a dare. And it turned out that this old-fashioned way of doing tattoos, number one, resulted in much richer colors, and number two, was noticeably actually less painful than your standard modern tattoo. That that could be so. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Do you like to cook? No, 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 no. Unless it's a charcoal grill. I love grilling. I love grilling. But regular stove and oven cooking? No. No. I hate doing that. Thankfully, my wife loves to cook. She likes experimenting with foods. And and the thing is, it's a blessing and a curse because if you're married to somebody or you live with somebody who loves to cook, that passion translates into usually some pretty amazing food, at least in my wife's case, it does. But it also makes it hell to try to lose weight because you have so much good food coming to you. Uh, I I do like to bake things once in a while, like uh, like cookies or something. That That can be fun. General cooking it? No, no. Can you drive a manual shift? No, I've I've never done that. I've never did that before. I don't know how. I never had access to a manual shift. I remember once when I was in high school, I didn't have a driver's license at the time, but uh, my dad had to drive me to school, but his car was in the shop, so he borrowed my brother's Plymouth laser. Yeah, I know. And the laser didn't have automatic shift. And my dad hadn't driven manual shift in like 30 years. And it was the weirdest thing in the world. Like 
being driven by someone trying to remember how to operate a manual shift because he wasn't used to it. He had done, he, he learned how to drive manual shift, but he hadn't done it in a long time. So he was trying to remember everything. It was just bizarre. Favorite color. Oh man, that's a tough one. Um, I like black. I like black. It, it goes with everything. And also I'm a nerd. Black is a nerd shirt color. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say hard, really hard to say. Hmm. Generally black, sometimes a good rich red, sometimes a nice navy blue. Depends on my mood, I guess. Do you like vegetables? Uh, generally, no, I don't. Generally, no. I do love uncooked carrots, so I like nice cold carrots. Ooh, very nice. And I do tend to like leafy vegetables, like, uh, oh, cilantro. Cilantro is a wonderful thing. I could, one of these days, I'm just going to eat a whole freaking bowl of it. In fact, I think Alton Brown actually said that he does that sometimes. He puts salad dressing on it. So uh, I like corn. I like, oh, especially grilled corn in the cob. Oh, my goodness. That stuff is amazing. Oh, but generally, I'm not a vegetable person. In terms of produce, I tend to lean more toward fruit. I like fruits. I like bananas. I like apple and uh, I like blueberries, grapes. I I like fruits. I like non-melon fruits. Do you work out? Some time ago, a gym opened up down the street from, from our home and they had some really good rates. So my wife and I joined and I learned really quickly that I hate working out. I really hate it. It bores me and it actually depresses me. I get on a machine for a while. I lift weights for a while. I actually feel sad afterwards. I'm thinking I'm not paying somebody a monthly fee to get sad. And, uh, one day my wife decided she wanted to take up running not, not as a huge hobby or anything, but because she just wanted to see if she could do a 5K. So she went to a running class that was held nearby, and she learned some ins and outs of running and maintaining herself properly. And something that she tried that really worked out well for her, and she does this a lot, is she'll run for a couple of minutes and then walk for a couple of minutes, and she uses an app to help her out with that on her phone. So just one day I decided to try that myself. I went to the gym where we had our membership and I, all I did was I changed my clothes and then I went out and I ran and I realized I really enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy being out of breath because I'm out of shape, but it occurred to me that I really like moving. I like moving around. So I decided I'm canceling my gym membership and I got a bike because, Hey, that's exercise and I'm moving around. So I guess if you count riding a bike as a workout, then I do that. I ride my bike to work and back as much as I possibly can, weather permitting, of course. If uh, if it's supposed to rain on my way to work, I don't take my bike. But if there's a chance it'll rain on my way home, then I might take my bike because, you know, then I could always just change into some dry clothes when I get home. And by the way, speaking of which, my advice to you is if you ever decide to ride your bike to work and you never have before, you are going to sweat. Bring at least an additional shirt with you. Bring something to change into when you get to work. Take my advice. Um, what else? Um, do you wear glasses? No, just sunglasses. Just sunglasses. I think I have 20-30 vision, which means just a tad less sharp than 20-20 vision. One day a few years ago, I just realized that it had been decades since, well, not that old, but still, I was, I think, a single-digit age when I last had my eyes checked. So I went just to see an eye doctor, have my eyes checked. And I remember at one point the eye doctor said, okay, uh, you see that sign over there about a block and a half away? It was a street sign. It was like, you know, state street or whatever it was. 
He said, look at that sign and here, put these glasses on and look at it again. Do you see a difference? And I saw a very slight difference. It looked slightly clearer with the glasses on. And the doctor said, your eyes, you don't need any vision correction if you don't want to. He said, personally, if it were me, I would, but that's only because I like everything to be hundred percent perfect, but you really don't need anything if you don't want vision correction. So yeah, I don't, I don't wear glasses. And I've decided that if I ever need glasses, I'm going to freaking wear glasses. I'm not going to deal with contacts because I've heard too many nightmare stories about contact lenses. And I'm not going to get the LASIK surgery because that's kind of risky and it's very expensive. And it doesn't even last forever. My boss had LASIK shortly after I started working there about six years ago and he needs it again. Because LASIK surgery doesn't, it's, it's not permanent. It's like, man, you're throwing money away doing that. Favorite season. I think I actually answered that in another version of this, but favorite season kind of uh, alternating between summer and early fall. I think I really, Oh, especially September. September's a great month because it's still warm enough to go outside in shorts. That's when the weather is really, really good. At least where I live now and where I lived in New Jersey, September was always great. And that's why Lisa and I had our wedding in September because we knew the weather was going to be good. There we go. It's fun to learn odd little things about people. And I'm sure I'll have a few more of these in future installments of Autobiography of a Schnook. So that was fun. But anyway, earlier I mentioned how this is going to be a little bit of a somber episode. And this is where the somberness is going to come. Back in February of 2018, when I first started conceiving this podcast, I sat down and just recorded my memories of what happened on September 11, 2001 especially given where I was living back in that day and those years. So um, my inflection is going to be a little bit different from normal because I was still trying to figure things out. But you're about to hear my recollections. And I am going to give you a little warning. There is an uncensored profanity. Just one. Just one. Once you hear it, that's it. It's over. No more profanities in this episode. At least nothing unbleeped. I figured, given the content and the context, it would just be totally cheap if I bleeped it or used a less harsh synonym. But I apologize if it uh, offends anybody, but it's just the way that things were going that day. But hey, enough of that. Let's hear my actual thoughts. I lived in Ocean Grove, New Jersey from 1998 to 2006. In 2000, I started working as a writer at a high-tech public relations firm, eventually promoted to account manager. For various reasons, I quit that job in June 2001. I was unhappy in the field, and when my boss talked to me about advancing my career, the last thing I wanted to hear about was making PR a career. The firm had all high-tech clients. I would frequently support these clients at trade shows and wonder why on earth I was representing them instead of doing what they did. At my wife's suggestion, I enrolled in computer classes at Brookdale Community College, focusing on software development. It provided me with a good excuse to leave my ever more stressful, ever more depressing job, especially because, at the time, my wife made enough money to support the both of us. However, I did continue to look for work after I quit that job. In fact, the first thing I did on the morning of September 11th, 2001, I turned on my computer, an already aging Amiga 4000, and turned on the dial-up modem. Remember those? 
so that I could get online, check my emails, and look for work. While the computer was booting, the phone rang. It was my mother-in-law calling from the doctor's office where she worked. She said, one of our patients heard on the radio the plane hit the World Trade Center. Can you turn on the TV and let me know what's going on? Recently, the artist Christo had been talking about plans to fly over the Statue of Liberty and covering it in drapes. So my thought was that it could have been that he actually went through with the plan and had a really bad accident. Whatever the case, when I turned on the TV, I expected to see part of a small plane sticking out of one of the towers and probably a puff of smoke. Instead, when I turned on the television, possibly NBC, but I don't remember for sure, I saw one of the twin towers with a huge fireball. I reflexively said something I never said to an elder before. Holy shit! My jaw dropped. It was much worse than a simple private plane having an accident. Still, it wasn't clear whether it was an accident or terrorism. I described what I saw to my mother-in-law, who relayed the information to her co-workers. While I was on the phone with her, I saw an explosion happen in the other tower. I didn't see a plane, but I saw the explosion. The folks on TV didn't see a plane either, so they replayed the tape in slow motion and saw a small dot approach the tower and collide into it. It was the camera angle that made an airplane nearly invisible on TV. Other camera angles clearly revealed it to be an airplane. It was clear now. Terrorism. After I hung up the phone with my mother-in-law, I talked with my wife, who could see Lower Manhattan from her office window at AT AT&T in Middletown, New Jersey. She didn't see either of the planes hit the towers, but she could see the aftermath pretty clearly, as there are only 10 miles between Middletown and Lower Manhattan as the crow flies. We maintained communication on and off that morning as things unfolded. Eventually, I heard about the Pentagon being hit by a plane and another flight crashing in Pennsylvania. I clearly remember where I was standing in our apartment when I heard this. I was next to the thermostat near the border between the dining room and the living room. I remember saying out loud, What the hell is happening to this country? I had heard that for obvious reasons. All flights over the United States were ordered to land at the nearest airports. A while later, I heard that all flights except for four were unaccounted for. But not long after that, I heard that they did indeed land safely, so no flights were in the air. By this time, it was hard to make a phone call, either via landline or cell phone. My wife and I were able to connect, at which point she told me that everybody had been dismissed and she'd be coming home. Also, AT&T had been concerned about a group of employees whose work location was the World Trade Center, but thankfully all had checked in as being safe. It was the only time that I had ever feared for my life, though, as I had no idea what would be next. But I was getting tired of TV coverage, so I took a walk. We lived two blocks away from the beach. I took a walk down Surf Avenue to the beach and back. Every house I had passed had either TV or radio coverage of what had transpired audible. But I couldn't help but notice what a perfect, beautiful day it was weather-wise. The temperature was as comfortable as you could possibly want, and not a cloud in the sky. When I got to the boardwalk, I saw that the beautiful blue sky was tainted by a thin brown stripe that got darker as you looked to the north. I walked back home, again hearing TV and radio reports coming from each home I passed. When I got home, I resigned to the knowledge that if I wanted some kind of sound that wasn't pre-recorded, it would have to be some kind of coverage of the news in New York. So, I turned the TV back on to NBC. I didn't know what else to do to pass the time, so I put new strings on the Fender bass my wife and I had bought ourselves as a wedding present a couple of years earlier. 
Lisa came home in tears. She sat down on the couch and composed herself. The phone rang. I recognized the number on the caller ID as belonging to my friend and Pie Factory podcast co-host Jim. I answered the phone simply by saying, we're okay. And my wife, uh, off in the distance, said, no, we're not. It was Jim's wife checking in and making sure, of course, that we were okay. Jim was on his way home from work. They had been dismissed early, too. As with a lot of workplaces in the country, his place of work dismissed its employees. He later said that the first thing he did when he got home was hug all three of his kids at once. I had tried on and off to call my parents to let them know we were okay. After all, there were times when we'd have to go into New York City, often for work-related activities such as meetings or trade shows. I was eventually able to reach my dad, who said he was relieved to hear from me because he and my mom were both worried sick about us because they knew that we would occasionally have to be in New York City for work. My mom was on her way home. She was a nurse for Amtrak at the time, working out of Union Station in Chicago. Because her boss was out of town, she was the most senior employee at work that day, so she made the executive decision that everybody should go home. Metra, which is the Chicago-area commuter train system that connects the city with the suburbs, was loading people onto trains without even asking for fare, putting everybody's safety first. Mom said that the way they handled everything couldn't have been better. For lunch, Lisa and I walked over to a place called Captain Jack's, a small seafood restaurant that had just opened up on Main Avenue. Once again, it was hard not to notice how gorgeous the sky was and the perfect September temperature. Honestly, though, I don't remember much about the lunch. I've seemed to remember that we both enjoyed the food. Our server told us that the staff in the kitchen had a Spanish radio station tuned in, as they usually do, and would translate into English any new reports that came out regarding the attacks. Lisa and I were thankful that nobody we knew would have been near the attacks, albeit obviously sad for lives that were lost or endangered. But seemingly out of nowhere, my wife said, Oh my god, Aaron. I said, Who's Aaron? Lisa reminded me that Aaron was the husband of someone she had recently become friends with, and we recently met Aaron, actually. Aaron worked in finance, if I recall correctly. He worked either in or near the World Trade Center. Lisa wanted to know if Aaron was okay, so she called a mutual friend, the safest way she could think to ask about something so sensitive. It turned out that yes, Aaron was fine. He worked near but not at the World Trade Center. Aaron managed to evacuate Manhattan via a ferry with dust and debris all over him. He was a bit shaken up, but otherwise fine. Not so fine, however, was our friend Norman, who lived two doors down from us and who had actually helped us find the apartment where we lived. He had worked in finance for years and in fact was our financial advisor. Norman was safe in Ocean Grove when the attacks happened, but he was clearly disturbed. He could only stare blankly and speak in short, emotionless phrases, very not like him. We believe he may have had some colleagues in Manhattan who may have died that day, but whatever the case, he was clearly shaken up. He pointed out how quiet it was outside with no airplanes flying overhead. Indeed, that was an unsettling observation to make. Ocean Grove is in the flight path for Newark International Airport, and it was rare for an incoming flight to not be circling overhead, as was just about everybody in the New York metro area and other places throughout the country, truth be told. My mother-in-law was scared. She didn't want to be alone, so my wife and I went to her house for dinner and stayed a while and watched the TV news coverage. I don't remember much from that evening other than I noticed that Lisa was still wearing the same navy blue knit dress she had on since she left for work, and that I was wishing that I could see something on TV that was not coverage of what had gone down earlier in the day. 
Yes, it was serious. Yes, our country was attacked. Yes, nearly 3,000 lives ended up being lost. But I just wanted something different, something to take my mind off it. But I had to put up with it. We got home in time to, well, basically just go to bed. It wasn't unusual then, nor is it unusual now, for Lisa to make it to bed before I do, be it because I'm up doing my own projects or just that I like to procrastinate in getting ready for bed. But that night, she didn't want to go to bed without me, so she waited for me to finish up anything I was doing. Lisa was afraid she would have nightmares, but she didn't. The next morning, the 12th of September, I woke up. And I felt pretty darn good, actually. And I think I knew why I felt good. I was alive. Somehow, I knew things would be okay for us at that point. And you know what? They were. Lisa went back to work that day. Obviously, I stayed home and looked for work. But Lisa gave me a task. Make sure I listen to Scott Muni at noon and report to her what songs he plays. For those of you who don't know, Scott Muni was a legendary radio disc jockey who was a big part of the album-oriented rock movement in FM radio. And he was an avid Beatles fan. He once said that everybody should hear at least one Beatles song every day. So to make sure people had that opportunity, he would play usually four, sometimes just three, Beatles, both group and solo, songs at noon every weekday on New York's classic rock station. Except Scott wasn't there that day. He lived not far from us in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, and would take the train into work every day. But apparently station management called him and told him, don't come in today, just stay safe at home, we'll get you covered. They ended up playing an entire hour of Beatles songs. I don't recall all the songs they played, but I'm sure somewhere online you can find a message posting of mine listing the songs. I do remember strongly that the first song played at the top of the noon hour was Yesterday. Hearing those opening chords in the guitar really made me feel punched in the gut. Wow, how appropriate. Most of the songs chosen were kind of reflective of what had happened the day before and appealed to listeners' emotions. I remember the final Beatles song of the hour was Flying, which I didn't quite understand. Why did they choose Flying? Didn't really make sense to me. What did Flying have to do with anything? Sometime between then and a year later, I heard an elderly caller on a radio talk show talk about how while one's memory typically starts to fade with age, certain things only get clearer. He said that about Pearl Harbor. So far, all these years since 2001, my memory of that day seems to get clearer every year, as I'm reminded of the details I had forgotten since that day. One thing I definitely have not forgotten. The next day, how good it felt to be alive. That was a pretty intense day, uh, to be sure. In the 19 months since I recorded that segment, I have since found the list that I wrote down of the songs that were played when Scott Muni would have been on the air. I don't remember who the substitute was, but it was a woman. I don't remember her name. But the songs that she played for Scott Muni's Beatles Hour were Yesterday, In My Life, let it be uh, for you uh, Beatles nerds like me. Um, that's the version overproduced by Phil Spector. Uh, While my guitar gently weeps across the universe. Again, the overproduced Spector version with a little help from my friends. How fitting all you need is love free as a bird. Here comes the sun. Wonderful choice for the occasion. Come together. Hey, Jude, give me love. Give me peace on earth. Imagine. And of course, flying now, I really, 
really hate to have such a downer episode, but the next thing I want to talk about for the Music for Schnook segment came about because of a, a, a tragedy, a tragedy I was not prepared for, and it happened over a month ago, and I'm still kind of in shock over it. I'm going to talk about some music that I really, really wish more people were familiar with. And so here is music for schnooks. For reasons that'll become apparent, I'm calling this installment Just Buy the Concert Ticket. Let me give you a list of some of the bands that I'm a fan of. The Monkees, The Birds, The Beatles, The Doors, The Beach Boys, Wings, Love, The Who. What do all these bands have in common besides the fact that they're kind of old? I never got to see them live in their complete lineups, and I never will. I never saw more than three of the Monkees together, and Davy Jones is dead. The Beatles broke up five years before I was born and never reunited, and John Lennon and George Harrison have since died. The birds in any lineup haven't been together in over 45 years, and Gene Clark and Michael Clark died years ago, as did several others from the various permutations of the band. Jim Morrison left this earth in 1971, and Ray Manzarek fairly recently joined him. I've seen the Beach Boys three times, each with a completely different lineup, but never with Dennis Wilson, who's been gone for 35 years. Wings won't reunite as long as Jimmy McCulloch and Linda McCartney are dead. I never had a chance to see any version of Love, and Arthur Lee died 13 years ago. Keith Moon died before I turned four, and John Entwistle OD'd before I had a chance to see The Who on tour. Unfortunately, effective August 6, 2019, I sadly need to add another group to that list, and it's not a terribly old group. With the sudden death of Nick Walusko, also known as Nicky Wonder, I will never be able to see Los Angeles power pop band Wonderments. Uh, not THE Wonderments, they're just called Wonderments. Nick, along with fellow Wonderments Darian Sahanaja, Mike D'Amico, and Probin Gregory had been in Brian Wilson's backup band since 1999. I actually first heard of Wonderments a couple of times in 1997 long before the then-shocking announcement had been made that Brian Wilson would start touring. Completely unheard of back then, by the way. On one of the Beach Boys fan forums I frequented online, someone said that Brian should go out and tour the Pet Sounds album with Wonderments as his backup band. And damned if that didn't happen three years later. <laughs> Around that time, my friend and current Pie Factory podcast co-host Jim uh, had to get that cross-promotion in there. He had seen this new movie that he wanted me to see, and he told me I needed to join him when he went to see it again. And that movie was Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. During a scene transition and part of the closing credits, there's a song called, fittingly enough, Austin Powers, performed by that band that I saw mentioned on one of the Beach Boys Usenet News groups, Wonderments. Austin Powers, The story that I read was that Mike Myers heard Wonderman's cover of Henry Mancini's theme from the movie The Party. He liked what he heard and commissioned the group to do a theme for Austin Powers. Indeed, the song does bear a bit of a resemblance to The Party. Of course, when Quincy Jones' soul bossa nova ended up in the movie, the Wonderman song Austin Powers kind of got pushed to the side. 
I heard that Mike Myers wanted them to do the theme song for Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, but Madonna wanted to do the theme song for that movie, and it turned out that Madonna was one of the co-owners of the soundtrack album's record label, so Mike Myers and company had to comply with the boss. But I really started getting into Wonderments a year or two after Brian Wilson started touring. Many people specifically mentioned the album Bali, their most recent at the time. One night, Lisa and I were in Borders. She saw a copy of Bali in the CD selection there, so I decided it was time to give that album a shot. I bought it and listened to it on the way to work and back the next day. With every track, one word kept coming into my thoughts. Outstanding. So much of this album is just unbelievable. Arnaldo said a tribute to Brazilian psychedelic band Os Butantes and their leader Arnaldo Baptista is a killer opener. Sting of Love is a track that makes you feel that you'll never be hip enough to truly appreciate it, and I mean that in a good way. Cellophane, drummer Mike D'Amico's first release composition as a wonderment, is an infectious fan favorite despite the creepy lyrics that you really won't notice the first few times you listen to the song. The title track, an homage to Darian Sahanaja's Motherland, sounds like a leftover from the Beach Boys' Smiley Smile album. Uh and something i learned thanks to a hidden track in the cd apparently wonderments submitted a commercial jingle to coors that was never used but i needed more Sometime later, I went to Jack's Music Shop in Red Bank, New Jersey, as I did on a pretty regular basis, actually. Out of curiosity, I flipped through the W CDs, and there was a Wonderman CD with the text on the front almost entirely in Japanese. The track listing on the back was in English, though, but it was all covers. Porpoise Song, originally done by the Monkees. Guess I'm Dumb, an early Glenn Campbell song written and produced by Brian Wilson the first time around. Arnold Lane, what? What? Arnold Lane? Someone actually acknowledging the Sid Barrett era of Pink Floyd? Naturally, I did not leave Jax without this CD. I guess I shouldn't have been surprised to see this CD at Jax. After all, Jack is a Beach Boys fan and would carry music by anybody remotely connected to the Beach Boys. I didn't recognize at least half of the songs. The group, not surprisingly, chose a lot of off-the-beaten-path songs to cover, not the usual old-school AM radio oldies. Whatever the case, it was now official. I was a Wonderman's fan. I should give a brief, as brief as I can be, a brief rundown on Wonderman's history. However, it's going to be a little bit rusty because I keep getting different information from different sources, but I'm going to try to synthesize it the best I can. At first, Wonderman's consisted of Darian Sahanaja on keyboard and Nick Walusko on guitar. Darian has a fascinating backstory, but I confess I don't know for sure what it is. 
One of his friends told me that Darian's entire family, including all four of his grandparents, immigrated to Los Angeles from Bali when Darian was a baby. However, Darian himself said on camera that one of his earliest memories was of running amid the bamboo in Jakarta as a child. As for Nick, well, I really don't know that much. I think he's three years older than Darian, give or take two days. But I do know that the two would celebrate their birthdays by making trips to Brian Wilson's childhood home. In fact, a picture exists somewhere of Darian, Nick, and one of their girlfriends outside of the now-demolished Wilson home. But one story I heard is that the two of them became friends over a bootleg of the legendary unfinished Beach Boys album, Smile. Wonderments, as a band, apparently officially formed in 1992, and they recorded three or four cassettes worth of material, distributed locally to fans and friends. In Wonderments discussion circles, you might hear talk of the red tape, the white tape, the blue tape, the purple tape. I think those are the colors. That's what those tapes were. And some of those recordings ended up on Wonderments' first self-titled album in 1995. And by that time, they had added Mike D'Amico as their drummer. The story that I was told was that Mike was originally brought in to overdub a guitar part or something, but when they found out he could play drums, they made him the drummer. Those three guys are the core members, but other musicians such as Jim Mills, Brian Casson, David Nolte, and Probin Gregory would fill out the sound. I guess uh, Probin put it best. Probin on more than one occasion called himself an auxiliary mint, and I guess that's what Jim, Brian, and David were as well. One description that I read about the power pop group's music is, and I quote, a mixture of Elvis Costello-esque new wave and 60s lounge music with a lyrical predilection for scientific or science fiction topics. Lyrics about trilobites and DNA are not unusual. And um, that seems to be a pretty accurate description, actually. Wonderman's obvious influences include, yes, Brian Wilson, Os Mutantes, Todd Rundgren, Motown, and Lord knows what else. Overall, the band has kind of a retro sound, but yet a modern sound at the same time, which tells me they were doing something right. I guess I should go through their pretty small discography. Now, that debut album that I talked about, simply called Wonderments, sounds a lot like what I gather it is, basically a bunch of demos by Nick and Darian. Many of the songs have a drum machine because they were recorded before Mike D'Amico became their drummer, or at least that's what I'm concluding. I guess a good quick way to go through the album is, I guess, put together a four-song EP, which can get pretty difficult. The opening track is called Proto Pretty. Uh, that's the song that mentions trilobites and DNA. It's a fun tune that sounds like an alternative version of Shiny Happy People. Nick's Global Village Idiot sounds like a modern reading of the Beach Boys' Heroes and Villains. And yet another song with a strong Brian Wilson influence is Tracy Hyde, probably one of the most popular songs in Wonderman's catalog, written about a B-movie actress Darian had a crush on, if what I read is correct. My favorite track on the album is Playtex Aviary. My only problem with the song, though, is it uses a drum machine rather than actual drums. I'll get back to that later, actually. In 1996, Wonderman's recorded and released their next album, but it was not the second album that they were hoping it would be. Wonderful World of Wonderments was that all-covers album that I bought at Jack's Music Shop. Well, it does have a remake of Tracy Hyde, their own song, but the notation says cover version. So, yeah, I guess they covered their own song. But honestly, listening to the two, I can't tell which is which. 
Uh, the reason this album was not the second album that they really wanted to do was that Wonderments really wanted to do an album of originals, but the record label asked them to do an album of covers. Now, what would my highlights EP from Wonderful World of Wonderments contain? Ah, that's a tough one. Um, I would have to include the first two songs from the album, Porpoise Song and Guess I'm Dumb. I actually prefer Wonderman's version of Porpoise Song over the Monkees version, and I know that's probably sacrilege, but I don't care. And I love Nick's interpretation of Paul Revere and the Raiders and Louise. So that goes on the EP, and I'd fill it out with Don't Go Breaking My Heart. I love the loungy sound on that track. And it actually ended up being Proben Gregory's only lead vocal as a Wonderment. And because he sings lead on that song, that's undoubtedly one of the reasons he's pictured with the band in the liner notes, even though he's not pictured on any other Wonderments album, even though he does play on all of their albums. I've seen numerous references call this song a cover of the Elton John and Kiki D duet, but no, it's not. Don't Go Breaking My Heart on this album is actually a cover of the Burt Bacharach song, which comes from his Burt Bacharach Plays His Hits album. You might remember that album for its brief appearance in Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery. The way Wonderments recorded it, it sounds like it has a little bit of a Doors twist on it, and it's, it sounds really, really, really cool. Uh, one time when I met Probin, I complimented him on his vocal performance on that song. He told me that when he recorded it, he and a longtime girlfriend had just broken up. I was singing it from the heart, he told me. I think Wonderman's third album was the album that they did want to do for their second album, and that would be the 1998 album Bali. Oh my god, it's such a fun listen from start to finish. The album opens up with a strange spoken intro. Ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to entertain you tonight with some very good songs from the beginning to the end of it all right upon first or possibly every listen you would think it was darian goofing around it kind of sounds a little like him and nobody would fault you for thinking that but the story that I heard is that, no, the weird announcement is not Darian. Alas, the name behind that voice may never be known. According to the story, Darian's boss at a record label he worked for had received a demo tape from someone claiming to be an opera singer, and the intro comes directly from that demo tape. Opera singer or not, the guy's voice reportedly was terrible. Unfortunately, the poor soul didn't even include any contact information, so they couldn't even send him a proper rejection. The true opening track, Arnaldo said, most definitely would go on my Bali EP. Such a killer track that may or may not sample from Os Mutantes' Algo Mice. The next track, Nick's Stingo Love, definitely has a slot on the EP. It's such an amazing track. I mentioned Mike D'Amico's Cellophane before, and that definitely gets a slot on my Bali EP. And filling in the final slot, oh man, that's a hard one. I'd, I'd have to say Hypno Love. As far as I'm concerned, the song Hypno Love absolutely defines the power pop genre. Catchy riffs of modern yet retro sound, and you got legendary session musician Carol Kay on bass. 
whatever your feelings are about her lately, I'm not going to get into that right now, but there's nothing not to love about the song Hypno Love. There are some honorable mentions from Bali in order. Telemetry is a very hypnotic track from Darien that sounds like an homage to the Doors of the Crystal Ship. Nick's track My Id Entity is stunning, if for no other reason. The time signature. What the hell is that time signature? Is it 11-4? Is it 11-8? Is it 6-4 and then 5-4 alternating back? Well, you know what? Here, why don't you give it a little listen? You figure it out for yourself if you can. Oh, here's a fun fact for you. Wonderments appeared in an episode of Fox's short-lived TV series, Get Real, in 1999, and uh, Anne Hathaway was in that show before anybody heard of her. There was a scene at a nightclub, and Wonderments are shown performing one of the songs that Nick wrote for the Bali album, specifically Puppet Girls Are Go. Uh, girls is spelled G-R-R-L-S, and R is simply the letter R. And uh, it's a tribute to the old Puppetoons TV show, Thunderbirds Are Go. Now, what's truly noteworthy about this brief TV show appearance is that even though Nick actually sings lead on the recording, Darian is actually the one lip-syncing the lead vocal on camera. From what I understand, the crew asked Darian to be the lead singer on camera, because he's taller than Nick, and therefore it'd be more noticeable on camera. Um, a, l- a little aside here, uh, Darian is not tall himself. Nick Nick was short. Darian's short, too. Uh, I think, if anything, it's his hairstyle that makes him look taller. He's got, he's got a tall head of hair, as uh, many people know. <laughs> also noteworthy about Bali is that its original pressing had literally 99 tracks on the CD most of which contain sounds provided by a Marsona Surf sound effects generator, pictured in the CD's liner notes, by the way. If you hang in there and listen to the entire length of that surf loop, that entire track, you'll hear, off in the distance, the theme song from the anime Marine Boy. After the album was released, Wondermints went on tour as part of Brian Wilson's backup band, and the exposure they got because of that gig led to a reissue of Bali on a kind of major label, Varez Sarabanda. I don't know how that's pronounced. Uh, that's the same label that recently released the Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas soundtrack, as I mentioned in a prior chapter. Now, that's the version that I have. Now, it doesn't have 99 tracks. All the Marsona surf tracks are merged into one long track and slightly edited to make room for another hidden track, specifically Rejected Beer Ad Number 2, the hidden track I mentioned earlier in this segment. Oh, by the way, speaking of EPs, after the release of Bali, there was an actual Wonderments EP released only in Japan, and it was called Cellophane. Obviously, it contained the song Cellophane, but it was a different mix of the song. Rejected Beer Ad Number 2 was also on that EP. The other two tracks were new songs that couldn't be found on any other Wonderments collection at the time. There was Darian's Reality Check, a mellow acoustic number that sounds like a reworking of Glenn Campbell's Guess I'm Dumb. Hmm, let's see how many times I can mention that song in this episode. And there's also a bouncy number from Nick called Invisible Paint. Well, good luck finding a copy of this EP, by the way, for a reasonable price at least. 
I think I paid $25 for mine, and I thought that was expensive when I bought it. Right now, the cheapest I can find is a used copy for $65, or best offer on eBay. After Bali and Cellophane, not much was heard of Wondermints, but for good reason. As I mentioned before, they were busy touring as part of Brian Wilson's backup band. But I did get a little hint of a new album in 2001. Brian Wilson was on tour with Paul Simon that year, and noticeably absent from Brian's band was Mike D'Amico. Lisa and I went to the show at the Garden State Arts Center that year. We meant to stay for Paul Simon, really we did, but after Brian's portion of the show, he had an autograph table set up outside the amphitheater, and the rest of the band was mingling with the crowd, and we just kind of got caught up in the action. We were chatting with some friends of ours and a few of the band members. I overheard somebody ask Darian, hey, where's Mike for this tour? And Darian said, well, we owe our label another album, and Mike's back home putting some finishing touches on the album. <laughs> Poor guy, he's really been stressing out over it. Well, okay, that's promising on two levels. First, it implies that Mike will be back with the tour later at some point. And second, it means a new Wonderman's album is coming soon. Which uh, was a bit of a problem, actually. You see... This was back when we had to listen to our music either on vinyl, cassette, CD, or radio. The iPod and other portable music players hadn't really taken off yet. I put together a CDR of my favorite Wonderman songs. Not just from the three albums I mentioned in the Cellophane EP, Wonderman's also recorded one-off tracks for several occasions that ended up on various compilation albums a Henry Mancini tribute album, the Austin Powers theme song from the Austin Powers movie, of course, things like that. They were on a lot of those kinds of uh, various artist collections. And so many of those tracks were so good that they needed a slot on my car CD. But man, that CD was jam-packed as it was. When the new Wonderman's album comes out, I'll have to seriously examine what tracks are important enough to merit being burned to an 80-minute CDR. Over time, I learned more about the upcoming album. For one thing, it would be called Mind If We Make Love To You. That's the exact title, no punctuation of any kind. Apparently, its name was borrowed from Mind If I Make Love To You, an album of uh, lounge music that Darian had in his record collection. The new album would be released September 10th, 2002, and it would actually be available in many mainstream stores, including Best Buy. That's a first for the band to have a brand new album out in stores that people have heard of. The album would have special guest appearances by Brian Wilson and 60s and 70s singer Evie Sands. Also, the band would be doing a show at the Knitting Factory in Hollywood on September 20th to promote the album with special guests. I seriously considered looking into flying out to California to see the show, but I came up with all kinds of reasons why I shouldn't, so I didn't. Oh well. But flash forward to August 2002. Lisa and I, we would always fly out to Chicago to attend a Beatle Fest. This was when we still lived in New Jersey, of course. And it just so happened that our planned trip would coincide with Brian Wilson doing a concert at the House of Blues in Chicago. Remembering that the band mingled with the audience after the 2001 show, I brought the liner from Wonderful World of Wonderments with me on the chance that I could get all four of the pictured Wonderments to autograph it. And sure enough, after the show, the band was out in the crowd talking with people. I think Probin was the first one that I approached. Oh my god, what a fun guy he is. Very enthusiastic and amazing sense of humor. Really nice guy too. 
Then I found Darian and I said, Hey, Darian, can I get you to sign this for me? And he smiled and he said, sure. I handed him the liner and he said, wow, thanks for buying this. He'd been so used to signing Brian Wilson paraphernalia, like tour programs and stuff. From all accounts, Darian is kind of bashful about his music. I guess he doesn't understand that he has fans who love Wonderman's music. In fact, one of the reasons they never really toured was that Darian had a hang-up about promoting his own music. He didn't feel it was right. He didn't mind promoting other people's music, but his own? He just felt kind of dirty about that, I guess. Darian said, did you know we have a new album coming out soon? I said, mind if we make love to you? And he laughed and said, well, yeah, I guess I should have known you knew about it if you bought this. So yeah, at this point I have Probin and Darian and now to get the other two. Hmm. Nick is busy talking with someone, so I don't want to interrupt him. But where's D'Amico? Where is, oh, there he is. He's carrying an amplifier across the stage. Oh man, what do I do? He's obviously doing something. He was gone last year. Do I take a chance that this might be the last time I see him? Oh, to hell with it. I yelled over to him, Hey, Mike! He immediately stopped and gave me his attention. Can I get you to sign this, please? Right away, he put the amp down and said, Sure. He came over to the front of the stage and sat down. Then a big smile came over his face, and he said, This is the first time I had a chance to sit down in six hours. Okay, good. Interrupting him was actually a good thing. While he was signing the uh, liner notes, Darian walked over and said, Mike has three songs on our new album. This bastard's getting creative on us. Yeah, that was pretty unusual. Darian and Nick had most of the songs on their previous albums, so three Mike songs was unheard of at the time. Lisa and I and a few other friends, I think including my late friend Jeff, whom I talked about a couple of episodes ago, we spent a few minutes talking with Darian and Mike. But I saw Nick was by himself at the bar off to the side, so I excused myself. He was the last one. Just as with the other three, Nick was very friendly and accommodating, although pretty quiet. He spent a moment considering where he wanted to sign his name. Uh, I should mention that the front cover of Wonderful World of Wonderments is a finger painting done by Darian of the band inside a rocket ship flying over a hilly rural area, I guess. Nick said, ooh, here's a good place. I want to put my name in one of the clouds. Nick had a unique signature. The N in his name was a square root symbol, and the curve of the C actually expanded far to the left, overlapping the I. To the right of his name, he'd put an equal sign, followed by the square root of negative one. Under that, he wrote surfs up, surf spelled S-E-R-F, and with the surfs up phrase surrounded by quotation marks and Spanish-style exclamation points. I'll put a picture of the autographed Wonderful World of Wonderman's cover on Instagram and the online bibliography, and you can kind of see what I mean about Nick's signature. That's uh, schnookpodcast.com, by the way. Oh, one other thing I should mention. The finger-painted Darian and Nick are very easy to distinguish on the cover. Nick's omnipresent fisherman's cap is hard to miss, and Darian's Balinese flesh tone and tall hairstyle stand out quite much. but. It's hard to tell who's Probin and who's Mike, so I asked Nick if he happened to know. Nick said that Probin is the one with the striped shirt. Ah, that's right, because in the actual photographs inside the liner notes, he does indeed wear a striped shirt. Oh, by the way, Probin and Darian also have unique signatures. Probin usually draws a cartoon rabbit face under his name, and Darian draws a little line diagram of a solar system next to his name. But yay, mission accomplished! 
So after I got Nick's signature, I noticed that Lisa and a couple of our friends were talking with Probin. So I kind of squeezed my way into the conversation. <laughs> Probin was talking about how they were trying to sneak in more songs from the legendary Smile album into Brian's shows. But of course, the final word was with Brian himself, who frequently put the kibosh on that. We talked about our favorite tracks on the Smile bootlegs that have been going around. The security guard walked over to us and he told us, uh, the venue's closed, you gotta go. So all of us, including Probin, walked about five feet closer to the exit and then stopped and then resumed our conversation. <laughs> and about 10 minutes later, another security guard came over to us and the same thing happened. Sorry, folks, you have to leave. We're closed. And we all said, okay, thank you. And we walked another five feet <laughs> kind of uh, toward the entrance, stopped again and picked up our conversation again. <laughs> And another 10 minutes goes by, and yet a third security guard came over to us. And again, we're closed, folks. You got to go. And Probin said, okay, let's walk five feet again and see if we can get away with it. Repeat until we eventually make our way out of the venue. Ah, oh, good times, good times. But anyway, a month went by, and my anticipation for Mind If We Make Love To You increased by the day. But when September 10th happened, no Best Buy within driving distance had the CD in stock. The hell? In fact, no stores had it, period. After a few days of fruitless searches and phone calls, I decided, screw it, I'll just order it online. Uh, I hated having to wait, but eventually, the CD did show up. I listened to it the following Sunday on my way to the church where I played bass in a folk group. The album kicked off with a track from Nick, On the Run. Whoa, hell of an album starter. That definitely goes on the Wonderman's Car CD. Next was Ride, a song by Darian that sounds like just about every song the Beach Boys did between 1970 and 1973 rolled into one. And it was one of the songs with Brian Wilson, although his voice is almost inaudible in the track. But oh my god, what a great track. Another must-have for the car CD. Another Darian song next, Shine On Me, with Evie Sands belting out a vocal in the end. Wow. Oh my god, so much power, so much joy. That is definitely, definitely going on the car CD. And in fact, it might even be in competition with Cellophane as my favorite Wonderment song. Wow. Only three songs in. All three so far are going on the car CD. So I got three tracks in by the time I got to church. And after Mass was over, I was back in the car and I heard the fourth track. Another Nick Walusko song, Time Has You. Oh my god. God, so pleasant, so catchy. Such a tasteful production with a beautiful string section. Okay, this is getting ridiculous now. Four songs in and all four absolutely must go on the revised Wonderman's Car CD. What the heck am I going to do? There's no way that I'll be able to put now all my favorite Wonderman songs on an 80-minute CD. Well, I'll, I'll worry about that later. Let me just enjoy this new album. Next up, Another Day, a song from Darian, a mellowish pop tune that sounds like it was inspired by uh, just about every good piano-based pop hit from the 70s. From what I understand, the band was very happy with how this track turned out. The recording was pretty effortless on their part, and everything just fell into place. Next song was the first of the three Mike D'Amico songs, and this song was called Project 11. I think the best way to describe Project 11 is... Tomorrow Never Knows Unplugged. Not bad, pretty good tune. Um, I don't know if it's worthy of the car CD, but oh well. But still, very good though. Halfway through the album and so many top-notch songs. 
Out of Mind, another one from Nick, is next, and perhaps most notable song is that it contains a theremin, an honest-to-goodness theremin. Don't believe that malarkey about a theremin being used on the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations. A Beach Boys recording doesn't exist that actually has a theremin. They used another device meant to sound like a theremin, and it was developed by a guy named Paul Tanner, and it was uh, colloquially called a tannerin. Uh, Tanner, theremin, get it? <laughs> but let's not worry about that right now. Uh, Out of Mind crossfades into another Nick Walusko track, the fantastic Sweetness. Oh man, Sweetness sounds like it might have been a leftover from the Doors Morrison Hotel album. Honestly, the next three tracks, are, they're good, but they didn't really do much for me. And then you have the final track on the album, So Nice, co-written by Darian and Nick, and has a little bit of God Only Knows vibe in it. This is another one of the tracks with Ryan Wilson, but you can actually hear him loud and clear this time. And it's a really nice way to close the album. But good God, what was I going to do? I had a car CD jam-packed with my favorite songs from one of my favorite bands, and each one was too important to bump off, even in favor of the amazing material on their new release. Well, I did the only reasonable thing I could have done. I bought a car stereo that could play back MP3 CDs. Ha! Now I could convert all four albums in their entirety, plus the cellophane EP to MP3, and every single Wonderman song in existence could fit onto one CDR now. That being said, that wasn't the last we heard from Wondermints. They did perform a set at the next Carl Wilson Walk Against Cancer, with Brian Wilson joining him for the song Ride. They also appeared on the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn. The band was planning to perform the song in and around Greg Lake from the Bali album until their manager, Chris Carter, Yep, same Chris Carter who's on the radio. Chris Carter reminded them that uh, they just released a new album a few months prior, and perhaps it'd be a better idea to do a song off the new album. So instead of in and around Greg Lake, they ended up doing Shine On Me. What really sticks out for me about that performance is that Probin can be seen playing two instruments at the same time, a tambourine and a valve trombone. Lisa and I had a good laugh about that because that was the most Probin thing you could ever see. As far as I'm aware, though, that's the last time Wondermints ever performed together as a standalone unit. From what I'm told, once Nick, Darian, Probin, and Mike established that they'd steadily be part of Brian Wilson's backup band, they decided it was time to put an end to the Wondermints project, as it were. Having said that, though, Darian since landed a full-time job with Disney. I believe his first project was working on the music for the show The Replacements, and in fact, he composed the theme song. Somebody told me that the theme song was actually credited to Wonderments, although I don't believe Mike D'Amico was on the recording. Thankfully, though, the end of Wonderments did not mean the end of new releases from the band. Various reissues of Mind If We Make Love To You had contained previously unreleased tracks, such as alternate versions of Out of Time, Ride, and Time Has You. One version of the album actually had Wonderman's cover of the Beatles' Getting Better, which was submitted for use in a Phillips commercial, but as with the two songs they submitted for Coors, it was rejected. Now, I gotta say this, I absolutely love Wonderman's, I love their music, I will forever preach how great their music is, but Phillips made the right decision by rejecting Wonderman's and using Gomez's version of Getting Better instead. Gomez did a much better version. Wonderman's version was okay, but not exceptional. 
And remember how I mentioned that there are random Wonderman's tracks scattered on different tribute and soundtrack albums? Well, in 2009, a new Wonderman's album that compiled many of those tracks was released in time for Christmas. It was called Kaleidoscopin', Exploring Prisms of the Past, and it contained previously unreleased tracks, some songs from those early color-coded cassettes I mentioned before, a couple of tunes from the Cellophane EP, and a version of Playtex Aviary with actual drums instead of a drum machine. It was a great collection, but unfortunately it's not easy to find for a reasonable price. As I record this, there's a copy on eBay for $199.99, but the good news is the shipping's free. The cheapest I could find on Amazon is a used copy for $175. Sadly, in the 10 years since its release, there hasn't been a second volume, well at least not yet. There are still more than enough leftover songs to fill out a CD. Uh, one that comes to mind most notably is Rejected Beer Ad Number 1, which personally I think is much better than Number 2. Also, Nick had been working on a solo album called Memories of Tomorrow. Word had been out for a long time that that album was in the works. When I was backstage after Brian Wilson's concert in New York City on November 22, 2006, uh, I told that story in a previous episode, I asked Nick, When's your solo album coming out? He said, soon, I hope. Sadly, though, nothing ever happened except he released one track, an instrumental called A Bionicle. That track made it out to just a small handful of people, but if you do a Google search, you can actually find a way to download the song. And I highly recommend it. Bionicle is an astonishing track, and it's a Wonderman's fan's dream. As for what the guys in Wonderman's have been doing over the years since the group disbanded, so to speak, well, of course, Darian, Nick, Probin, and Mike have all been pretty steadily part of Brian Wilson's backup band. Sometimes Darian has to miss some concert dates or an entire tour due to his commitments to Disney, and he's also a backup musician for Hart and the Zombies. So if Hart or the Zombies are on the road and suddenly Brian Wilson schedules a tour, well, Darian often has to miss at least a couple of dates from that tour. And he's an incredibly important part of Brian Wilson's band, though, and both his talent and his general stage presence. Mike D'Amico, well, he's in the band, although he did take a couple of years off touring to spend time with his wife and daughter, but he's been back as the drummer pretty steadily over the last 10 years. Both Probin and Nick had been consistently touring with Brian Wilson over the past 20 years, although Probin does have other gigs, most recently touring with Mickey Dolenz and Mike Nesmith. When the Beach Boys had their 50th anniversary reunion and tour in 2012, the backup band consisted of members from Brian Wilson's backup band, including the Four Wondermans, plus some members from Mike Love's touring version of the Beach Boys. What was kind of scary was that Nick actually missed a lot of dates during that tour. Apparently, he had a nasty illness that hospitalized him for a while. It was Wednesday, August 7, 2019, when Brian Wilson's Facebook page announced that Nick died in his sleep the previous night. Brian and the band had just touched down for their gig outside of Buffalo, and in fact, a picture of Nick with a couple other band members at the airport from the day before had been circulating. I don't think it was determined or at least announced what actually killed him. Could have been a heart attack. He was only 59 years old. Might have been related to the illness he had in 2012, but I don't know. I don't know. But the news was just devastating. Nick's presence in Brian Wilson's tours was so important that even though the tour going on right now is a performance of the entire Pet Sounds album, they are not performing the title track, an instrumental driven by lead guitar. Because, well, 
Nick's not there to perform it, and I'm guessing no one else in the band knows how to play it. Remember, I said Nick's death was announced on August 7th. Brian was due to perform a concert that night. The show went on, and Nick's guitars were still set up in his usual spot on the stage, along with a microphone. But instead of Nicky Wonder, as he was often called, a bouquet of flowers was placed by his guitars as a memorial. But yeah, so many fans are just hurting from this loss. But I can't imagine the pain that those close to Nick are going through. He goes back to the 80s, if not even before that, with Darian and Probin. I can't imagine the pain that his wife Susan is going through. Naturally, Wonderman's music has been in steady rotation on my iPod in the last couple of weeks. And believe me, I have been planning a Wonderman segment for this podcast for a long time. I just didn't know it would be forced out of me from tragedy. Another tragedy, though, is that not many people know Wonderman's music. I guess if I'm being very, very brief, then I'd have to say that if you like the band Jellyfish, you'll absolutely like Wonderman's. All four of their core albums are available for purchase, but I don't think they're available for streaming. Of course, there are the songs I specifically recommended in this episode, but if you're looking to honor Nick's memory, check out Global Village Idiot, Carnival of Souls, Sting of Love, Puppet Girls Are Go, Dream Machine, that's spelled D-R-E-A-M-A-C-H-I-N-E, by the way, all one word, On the Run, Time Has You. I'm leaving out, but man, just listen, okay? And do a Google search for Bionicle, B-I-O-N-O-C-L-E. It is such a killer track. Oh my God. Finally, I just have to say, I've said that at this point in my life, I have very, very few regrets. I used to say half-jokingly that not getting that plane ticket to Los Angeles in 2002 to see Wonderman's show at the Knitting Factory was one of those regrets. Well, time has proven that to be a terrible, terrible mistake. Sure, I'd wished before that I'd gone, but I always held on to hope that the band would get together again and do a show or two. Now, however, it's impossible. If you're not going to humor me and sample some Wonderman stuff, then at least, please, please take my advice. Just buy the concert ticket. You never know if it'll be your last chance. If you can't afford it, use a credit card, borrow money, do a GoFundMe, or try to win a radio call-in contest. Would you rather just come up with excuses as to why you can't see one of your favorite artists in concert only to regret it later? Or have a memory of hearing some of your favorite music performed live by some of your favorite artists? Just buy the damn concert ticket. Thanks to GoFundMe, Nick's album will be finished and released on vinyl. And uh, yeah, I am so going to be on top of that. By the time you will hear this, I more than likely will have attended my first Brian Wilson concert since Nick Walusko's death. The tour that he's doing this fall, the set list is focusing on the Beach Boys 1968 Friends album, which actually is one of my favorites. I love that album so much. It's very mellow, very relaxing. And the 1971 Surf's Up album, which is an interesting choice because Brian is hardly on that album at all. Long story short, it was recorded in 1971, mostly by the other Beach Boys, and they were trying to make it sound like Brian was more involved than he actually was. And it actually was 
kind of a cult favorite at the time. People loved that album. I think it may have had something to do with it came out right around the time that the uh, the Beach Boys joined the Grateful Dead for a concert, and word got out that the Grateful Dead liked them, so hey, the Beach Boys were hip again, and uh, the album actually has a lot of fans who are not generally Beach Boys fans. And I'm just going to spoil it for you right now. Next episode, the next installment of Music for Schnooks coming up in the next episode, if all goes according to plan, is about another musician who sadly left this world too early. And just as sadly, not many people know about, and I really, really want people to know about him. But having said that, hopefully I'll be able to make the episode a little bit more upbeat than this one likely was. But I do thank you for listening. And as usual, I thank my wonderful wife of now 20 years, Lisa. And what else can I say? You can reach out to me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. That's my email address. And schnookpodcast is also my Twitter and Instagram handles. And you can stick that at the end of facebook.com and you'll get to the autobiography of a schnook Facebook page. In the meantime, folks, remember, the good goes around. And I think I closed out the previous episode with this, but I'm going to close it out again with the same message. Give us all the good news from the sun. Good night, my Russian brother Nick. <laughs>